Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 10. If you would open your Bibles and please stand for the reading of our sermon text this morning. I read from verse 1 through verse 10. This is the word of the Lord, it is eternally true. But the Spirit explicitly says that in later times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars, seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. Men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude. For it is sanctified by means of the word of God in prayer. In pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following, but have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. For bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance. For it is for this we labor and strive, because we have, our, because we have fixed our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated. So we move from Paul, the Apostle Paul telling Pastor Timothy some things that that, are coming, things that he needs to warn the flock about, and then he turns to uh, address Timothy and, and his faithfulness in, in telling the people these things, um, and how to preach them, and how to be a good servant of Jesus Christ. And, you know, as I, as I thought about this passage, I thought about the goal of preaching, What is the goal of preaching? The goal of preaching is not to fill the minds of reformed intellectuals with stimulating thoughts, right? That is not the goal. Um, It is certainly not to impress esthetes, you know, people who like like, um, aesthetics. It's not to impress esthetes by means of eloquence and good form. You know, that's not, not what it's about at all. The goal of preaching is, is, as I've heard it put by others, is to afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted. Afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted. In other words, the goal of preaching is to prick the conscience. That's how the Puritans would have put it. Preaching should cause the Christian to contemplate the fatherly love of God and um, live accordingly. It's to contemplate God the Father and His love and to live in accordance with that love He has for us. Um, Preaching today is not often like that. You have more of a chance um, of leaving a church 
uh, on a Sunday morning with lies falsely soothing your conscience than you do of having been chastened, right? Having been chastened by God's fatherly discipline and love um, by means of His Word. Uh, Trinity's commitments state the following, and I think it's a good summary of godly preaching. The true preaching is neither a lecture nor a motivational pep talk. God's spokesman is not to suggest things for the congregation's consideration. He does not submit theories to the congregation for their evaluation. Rather, he proclaims God's truth, making piercing applications of that truth to the consciences of particular people. So piercing applications to the consciences of particular people, like the people he knows, like the, the people he talks to outside of the pulpit. In the name of Jesus Christ, he commands men to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and believing to understand and obey every word recorded in Scripture. God's word is both a hammer and a healing balm, so the preaching of it should lead God's people to fear and to love him, to sobriety and comfort as we face our sinfulness. Um, so look at how our passage begins this morning. The Apostle Paul writes to Timothy and says, in pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant of, Je of Christ Jesus. What things? The things written immediately preceding this statement. Things like, some people will fall away from the faith. Things like some people will pay attention to deceitful doctrines, to deceitful spirits and the doctrines of demons. That there will be hypocrites with seared consciences who forbid marriage and tell you not to eat certain foods. That nothing, including bacon and lovemaking, is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude. Um, that everything created by God is good. Uh, you know, all those kinds of things we're used to hearing from Reformed pulpits, right? All those things in that list are not the things that we are used to being uh, hearing. If we've been raised on a steady diet of typical Reformed preaching, we're more likely to think that pointing out those things is not being a good servant of Christ Jesus, but rather being a poor servant of Christ Jesus. The man who might preach and teach and privately warn in a manner that reflects the, the pointedness and clarity of those first few verses of 1 Timothy 4 would likely be marked out as a harmer of the sheep and not a good servant of the sheep and of the chief shepherd of the sheep. Did you resent it last week when I pointed out how the gay celibate Christian movement is wicked in its disregard for Scripture and how it parallels the teaching of the men in Ephesus who forbid marriage? Did you resent it when I pointed out our food righteousness and culinary missions programs? Right? I'm sure I could make everyone here happier if I just avoided your consciences. I avoided your consciences and, and tried not to make piercing applications of God's truth, right, to particular people. Keep it generic, keep it distant. Um, our church might even grow. But this scripture stands as a warning to pastors and elders. 
We must be specific in our application of Scripture. We must point out specifics to those we are called to minister to. But there is an ever-present temptation for pastors and elders um, to want to be liked and then accordingly to hold their tongues. I mean, who wants to be negative all the time? Who wants to be the dad that warns his children not to get so close to the edge of the Grand Canyon? I do. Um, and that's the kind of pastor um, the Scriptures bind my conscience to be. Uh, don't resent it. Don't resent it. It's only meant to be helpful to you and a strong goad to walk in a manner worthy of our great Savior, Jesus Christ. It's meant to be a goad to holiness. It's meant to be a goad for you to be like Jesus. Calvin says this about his time, and if it's true of his time, how much more true is it of our own? We know that most men are quickly weary of that which might be profitable for them and take pleasure rather in vain things and such as are of no profit. Right? This is quickly weary. We get tired of hearing about things that are helpful to us. Um, but crave for that which is profitable. Leave behind vain things and things which are of no profit to you. And to pastors, Calvin, Calvin writes this. He, he, he says, let us mark that when we never behave ourselves as we ought in the preaching of the word to edify the church, unless we close our eyes concerning men and are not moved with any fond desire to be esteemed and to be praised and commended for our excellent intelligence or profound learning or babbling eloquence. We must forget all of this if we will edify the church of God. We just have to forget all of all the vain temptations, right? The, the desire to be liked, the desire to be esteemed, the desire to, to be understood as a, a profound thinker, the desire to be uh, seen as an eloquent speaker who holds your attention without fail every week. He says, put all that aside. I mean, how many Reformed celebrities want to be known for their excellent intelligent and profound learning and babbling eloquence rather than for their clear, piercing, obnoxious application of God's Word? to consciences of particular people, not just generic people who might happen to be listening to their radio broadcast. There are too many like that. Now notice also that the Apostle Paul says, in pointing out these things to the brethren, in pointing out these things to the brethren, if you look at the e, at an if you're looking at an ESV version, they get a little uncomfortable with the Apostle Paul's faux pas of, not, of only speaking of the brothers. So they add this note: or brothers and sisters. In New Testament usage, depending on the context, the plural Greek word adelphoi, translated brothers, may refer either to brothers or to sis, brothers and sisters. Well, yes and no. Yes and no. It is not that simple. Uh, scripture uses masculine generics for a purpose. Okay? All of which point back to the fact that God named the human race Adam. 
God named the human race Adam, and that he, as the head of the human race, plunged all mankind into sin. But there came along another head of the human race, the man, Jesus Christ, the second Adam. When we are given representative names for all people, the scriptures use generic masculines. Um, And every one of those generic masculines is a reminder of headship, of representative headship. So that he says, pointed out to the brethren, is not just a mistake or not just a product of his culture, but it is the Holy Spirit's inspiration. Right? There is theology packed into the use of generic, and generic masculine, even pronouns and nouns in the Scripture. Of course, when Paul speaks to the brethren, he is including the women. Of course he is. But in a representative sense through the men. Okay? So the ESV's unease with these generic masculines betrays their unease with male headship and ultimately with God's very fatherhood. Or if it is not unease, it is simply a scholarly unwillingness to trust the common man in the pew to understand what I just explained in a few sentences. Okay, the Holy Spirit wrote brethren. The Holy Spirit wrote brethren, and that is not a mistake of the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit does not make mistakes. In using brethren, there is also an implicit reminder that the men of the church are responsible and responsible to be fathers of the flock. That's packed in every time there's a generic masculine. Notice that the source of these exhortations and the cause of Timothy's being a good servant of Christ are the nourishment that comes from the word, the words of the faith and sound doctrine, which he has been following. His understanding of the, the word of God is exemplified in his own living and believing. Make him a good servant of Jesus. Timothy, as with all of us, is to order his life by the commands of our loving father. God is a father. And we are members of his household by virtue, you know, by virtue of, of his, his work in us, by virtue of Jesus' obedience, right? By virtue of Jesus' obedience to his Father's commands and his subsequent resurrection. So we, we then are to live according to God's commands. We should desire to live according to his commands. We desire to be like our Father who is holy, and, and it is by that faithful living, that, that loving of Jesus by obeying his commands, that we become useful to those around us. Do you want to be a good mother? Do you want to be a good brother or sister? Do you want to be a good boss? Do you want to be a good elder? Do you want to be a good father, a good friend? Well, nourish yourself on the faithful words of Scripture and sound doctrine. Now, to be nourished means you can't just have a meal of God's Word every now and then. Right? To be nourished, to be well-nourished. Um, the, the most nourishing diets are those where there is consistency and steady work. 
How in the world do we think we can be nourished on the Word of God and sound doctrine if we miss the opportunities that the church offers for our nourishment? Or we skip our private reading and searching of Scripture? Or we seldom memorize Scripture in order to let it sink down deeply into our hearts? I mean, I know there are many of you who actually do that work, and it is so encouraging to see it. Um, when something comes up that troubles you, the first place you go is you start flipping through the scriptures. What does God say to me? What, what is God, you know, what, why? What, what is going on here? What does the word of God say to me about this? And so you open up the scriptures and search it so that it can, you can be nourished properly. You don't just want to serve your natural urges and your sinful desires, right? But you want to be a good servant of Jesus Christ. You want to serve Christ in every situation, and you rightly reason that that means, I mean, obviously that means knowing what he says. That means having wisdom. Others of us, though, if we really are honest with ourselves, trust our own thoughts and our own intuitions, and our own inclinations. And do not seek answers from the sacred doctrines found in God's Word. How many times does God have to remind us to be nourished in His Word before we will actually do it? How many times do we need reminding of His goodness to us in Christ Jesus and His reproving of our sins? How many times do you need that in a day? Many, 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 many times, don't you? Remember, all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Uh, Calvin, reflecting on those verses, summarizes it this way, it is not God's intention that the Scripture should be applied to delight men or to make them laugh or to give them some matter to talk about. No, no, but God considered what was good for us. It's what's good for us. It's not meant to stimulate you intellectually. It's not meant to make you laugh. It's not meant for any of the other reasons you read anything else. It's meant for your good. It's meant truly for your good. If God says the Scriptures are good for us, why so much neglect of them? Shouldn't we rather hang on His words and hear it preached as often as we can and study it and treasure it? And of course, that's what it should be. We all assent to that, but do we live it? Do we live that? Then the Apostle Paul tells Pastor Timothy, but have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. Now that's not nice, is it? That is not nice. I mean, worldly fables fit only for old women? Was the Apostle Paul ignorant of the fact that there would be old women of the congregation who might not take very kindly to those words? Well, no, he... He was perfectly well aware of it being taken that way. Um, In other words, in being a good servant of Christ Jesus, he's even willing to discipline the older women of the congregation. 
who generally in many churches hold the most power. You know, I've known many, many, many pastors whose tenure was going along quite well at a church until he decided he would speak clearly to to the matriarch of the church. And once he did, the whole thing came crashing down around him. Um, likely her son, who was serving as an elder, then became an enemy of the pastor. And I know a situation exactly like this. Older women in the church can be godless busybodies, fixated on every kind of godless fable. Um, this is, think of it, this is the sin of Eve, right? She was deceived by a worldly fable from the serpent. Um, this is a particular type of sin that women must be warned about, okay? But think about it, brothers and sisters. This, this is the part of the text that no reformed man wants to deal with today. The Holy Spirit inspires this and says that there are fables that are only fit for old women. Um, worldly fables are the type of things that only old women really buy into, or particularly buy into. Now, isn't that helpful, sisters? Isn't that helpful to you? That you have to be on guard to protect yourself from the stupidities that flow across your Facebook feed. That you can't believe all the stupid things said about gunners in Las Vegas that you can't believe all the stupid things that it says about how you can be young again. That you can't, you, you, sh- you are going to be particularly tempted to believe in, in all the crazy end times prophecies that, that you, you read in an uninspired book. End times prophecies, special cosmetics that make you look younger, supplements that will restore your health, publishers, clearinghouse, jackpot wins. It's only old women who return those things. Right? Um, Whatever. You know, your husband has been afraid to tell you that you are paying attention to worldly fables and that your beauty should consist in the hidden person of the heart, not in outward appearance. But I'll tell you that. I'll tell you that. Forget the outward. But of particular note here, remember that the Apostle Paul is is exhorting Pastor Timothy not to give himself to the propagating of such worldly fables. He is to preach the Word of God, helpful even to older women. He must not preach worldly fables, things that tickle the ears, things that are pleasing to hear, things that are both historically, you know, unhistorical and untruthful things that are myths, however interesting and titillating they may be, right? Conspiracy theories based upon videos found on the internet, giving credence to the end of, you know, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Maybe there is an Ark of the Covenant in the government warehouse somewhere, right? Um, The pastor, the teacher must be grounded, right, In, in nothing but the Word of God. His teaching is is to take our minds off of the world, to make us hate the world, right? His, 
His, his teaching must not make us in a twisted sort of way nostalgic about the trivialities of this godless generation. His preaching can be nostalgic, though, about stupid vanities. Everyone has an opinion, everyone has a thought, everyone has a point of view, and by tomorrow, everyone's opinion has changed. The media and Facebook peddle in myths and worldly fables, right? They get breathless about one or two shooters, and in doing so, miss the forest for the trees. They miss the point that man is dead in his sins, right? And and the heart is desperately wicked, and, and so we make up myths that somehow help us to feel more comfortable about life. But the fact of the matter is, is every time there's a mass shooting, you should be thinking God is wicked and this is going to happen everywhere all the time. Flee from damnation and find Jesus Christ. There is no lasting value in the changing opinions of man Value lasting, eternal value is found in God's Word. Why? Because the Word of God will teach you about everlasting life in Christ Jesus. Worldly fables, they're going to teach you what thrills you for a few minutes. Timothy is to avoid preaching in a way that directly or even directly, by the content of his illustrations, for example, gives attention or credence to worldly fables. Those things that are particularly delightful to godless and deceived old women. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. The Apostle Paul, Paul tells Timothy to do something instead of giving himself to worldly fables, to myths. He's to discipline himself for the purpose of godliness. Don't pursue lies, he says. Pursue godliness by means of discipline. You can pursue made-up lies or you can pursue godliness. That was Timothy's choice and that is your choice as well. That's every Christian's choice. I remember a man I ministered to in Toledo. He gave himself in major ways to myths and worldly fables. Uh, He grew up playing fantasy games. He had all kinds of paraphernalia from those games. He got so into it that he, he, he eventually had a hard time de- deciphering between um, fantasy and reality. Um, he had a wooden chalice that at times he really thought was the Holy Grail. Um, particularly sad was the fact that he was a husband with three beautiful children. And one day we were sitting down for breakfast and he asked me a question. He asked me a very simple question, but the question blew me away. He said, do you really think that a man is worse than an unbeliever if he doesn't provide for his family? Well, you know, I was like, well, do you know that scripture, right? Do you know that's the word of God that says that, right? Um. It's in the next chapter forward in 1 Timothy. But if anyone does not provide for his own and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. And and you realize why that man was asking me that question, right? He was determining whether he was going to live his life according to myths and worldly fables 
or whether he was going to live it according to the word of God. He wanted to neglect his family in order to pursue his first love, fantasy. This is the choice that you face too. Will you live your life according to myths and fables told to you from friends and and televisions, or will you live your life according to the inerrant, infallible, and and eternal revelation of God Almighty? Now, that, that doesn't seem to be much of a choice when I put it in those terms, does it? But be real and honest with yourself. Do you ever wake up suddenly in the middle of the night and think, I cannot serve God in wealth? And your, your conscience is bothered by it. But oh, how I love money. God, have mercy on me. Or do you simply just coast, not self-examining, not self-disciplining, and just going along, serving both? Are you ever halted in your tracks by the thought that you have committed adultery against your wife by looking at images on the computer? Or do you blithely just go along committing adultery because you're willing to give up that happiness? You're unwilling to give up that short-lived but pretty intense happiness that comes from it. If that is not happening, tell me whether you are pursuing worldly fables or pursuing godliness. Are we grieving the Spirit, or are we empowered by the Spirit to kill the desires of the flesh? If you are united to Christ, think of this, if you are united to Christ, though there are peaks and valleys, there will be a pursuit of godliness evident in your life. In fact, that will be your joy. That will be your joy. Um, Succulence and sowing and music may be joyful to you. But there will be nothing to match the joy you have in walking before God with a clear conscience. There will be no higher joy than contemplating the holiness you have by faith in Jesus Christ. Look, bodily discipline is of little profit. But godliness is profitable for all things since it holds promise for the present life but also the life to come. Right, bodily discipline, or really looking at the Greek, training as an athlete, has little profit. Why? It, it only profits in the present life. But godliness, it is profitable for all things, not only the present life, but the life to come. It is profitable in the here and now and in the life to come. Godliness pays, godliness pays some serious dividends. Right? Many who are fixated on athletics do so because they're, they're short-sighted. They're living for the glory of this life or the feelings of their body or simply for sheer vanity. Think of the myths. Think of the myths people turn to when it comes to that area. How many billions of dollars is this industry just in our country? Um, in some sense, the pursuit of rigor when it comes to bodily exercise is an attempt to live forever, but not in heaven simply in this life, right? But is there a man you know, is there anybody you know who pursues godliness with anywhere near the zeal of those who train their bodies for athletics? Anybody in your life that you know like that? Are you like that? Right? Is the pursuit of godliness, your sanctification, something that 
You do because you're ravished by the glory of God and the holiness of your Savior, Jesus Christ. Right? Or does it honestly pale in comparison to your pursuit of, of exercise? Honestly, I think we'd rather be conformed to the image of bodybuilders and models than we'd like to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Which of you boys here would rather have a six-pack than, than be pleasing to God? It's a big smile, Zeke. Pastor's kids, I get to pick on them. Um, you know, which of you girls would rather have a pretty face than to be pleasing to God? Godliness is profitable for all things, for it holds promise for the present life. Don't believe the lies. Godliness pays off in this life. The lies of the devil tell you that godliness will not please you in this life. This scripture contradicts that. Godliness pays off in this life and for the life to come. Scripture says, pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. Right? See how the pursuit of godliness pays off in the life to come. Without that pursuit, you will not see the Lord. It is, it's very simple. The Christian loves Christ and wants to be like Him. He recognizes in Christ all riches and he desires to share in those riches. He loves Jesus and so he honors Him and loves Him by obedience. And seeing the glory of salvation given as a gift, he dedicates his life. The Christian dedicates his life to pursuing godliness and loving the one who conquered death on his behalf. That's what we do. But think of your pursuits. Think of all your trivial pursuits, right? And remember that this portion of the letter is written to stir up Pastor Timothy to faithfulness. This is particularly true of pastors and elders, right? They must show forth an example of godliness. Then the apostle writes, it is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance, for it is for this we labor and strive because we have fixed our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. What he has just exhorted Timothy to, preaching the word, not paying attention to worldly myths, pursuing godliness, that is the labor given to the minister. And it's, it's not done out of a hopelessness or boredom, but because we have fixed our hope on the living God. They labor and strive because their hope, their future, their whole lives are wrapped up in the reality of, of the God revealed in Scripture. You know, the world has its sources of inspiration, power, money, wealth, vanity. And the Christian has his source of inspiration, the living God. The living God. Who is this God? Paul says that he is the Savior of all men, especially believers. Now that's a perplexing statement, isn't it? Is that a statement of universalism? That God saves all men, even unbelievers, but he especially saves believers. Well, that can't be true because Jesus clearly will make a separation between the sheep and the goats one to everlasting life and, and the other to damnation. So what is the Holy Spirit's meaning here? 
Well, this is the explanation. The Holy Spirit is not using the word Savior in the sense of Savior to everlasting life, but rather in the sense of sustainer. In other words, Jesus is the Savior of all men in the sense that he makes the rain to fall on the righteous and the unrighteous alike. He saves all men from death by giving them water from heaven. Um, But a believer's, he saves them especially to eternal life. Uh, Calvin says, now we see that God defends the very, think of this. Now we see that God defends the very infidels. As it is said that he makes his sun shine upon the good and evil. And we see that all are fed by his goodness and delivered out of many dangers. And thus he is called here a savior of men. Not in respect of the spiritual salvation of souls, but because he maintains all creatures. And Calvin goes on, he says, Thus is our Lord a savior of all men. Namely, because his goodness stretches even to the worst sinners that are farthest off from him and deserve to have no acquaintance with him, but should rather to be cut off from among the creatures of God and utterly cast away. And yet we see how God stretches out his grace even so far, for the life that is given them is a witness of his goodness. And therefore, seeing that God takes such great care even of those who are strangers to him, what shall we think of ourselves who are of his own household? Not that we are better or or more excellent than they which are cast off, but it proceeds wholly of his free mercy, and that he reconciles himself to us in our Lord Jesus Christ when he calls us to the knowledge of the gospel. And then he ratified and sealed his goodness to us insomuch that we cannot be persuaded, we cannot but be persuaded that he is our father and takes us for his children. Now that's helpful, isn't it? That's helpful, isn't it? God is a father, and in a sense, in the sense that he sustains the life of all men, even if they refuse to acknowledge him or give him thanks. And we should see that even in the mercies we see wicked men receive. We should see that. Wicked men have received the mercy of taking breath today. And that comes from God as their sustainer. In that sense, He, God, our providential and powerful God, is the Savior of all men. But don't forget the last part, especially of believers. If His care of all men, if God's care as a Father of all men is so rich, think of how much He cares for those that are a part of His very own household, united to Christ His Son by faith. That is an undying, everlasting, omnipotent kind of salvation and love. Scripture says, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Praise him, right? Amen? Amen. Let's pray.